0: Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. This is a two for one treat. Same price, free <laughs> <laughs> to you guys. We've got two really awesome studs here. Uh, we got Johannes Lick and Brad Batten of Broadtree Partners. And I've gotten to know these guys before they even had Broadtree, which is really fun. And it's just been fun to see the evolution of their partnership and their empire that continues to grow. And so before we get into all of that and Ben take a sink to that, I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with the same scenario for each of you because both of you guys have done Spartan races, which is fun. And, and that's not for the fake of heart. No, no, <laughs> so, so here's the deal. We'll start with you, Johannes, and same thing goes for you, Brad, but... The scenario is you are in the parking lot. You're getting ready for this event. And you're uh, putting on your your mucking shoes that are going to just get totally trashed in this, in this race. And somebody sees you in the parking lot and they say, hey, that's Johannes Wick. They start talking about you but not realizing you can overhear and understand everything they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you? being mm-hmm. honest.
1: Um
2: good question. I guess if, in that context, my answer is probably a little bit different than if I um, overheard somebody in just a random party lot. But <laughs> if it was in preparation for Spirit, I I'd hope they say, man, this guy's really tough. He can <laughs> he can really run with the best here. Um, um but maybe more more generally I would I'd also hope if there was some one quality or characteristic that he really cares. He cares about his friends, his family. He cares about, you know, making some kind of contribution in this world, having whatever little place or big place that I have and, and you know, caring about the people people around him.
0: So, yeah, that's good. All right, Brad, turning the tables on you.
1: Yeah, I like what Johannes said, uh, but I'll go with something. Different so that the listeners get some variety. That's right. Um, You get it. You get it. And I think I'd really want someone to say that he does the right thing, and he does the right thing whether people are looking and watching and around, or whether he's by himself. And I think to me, it's really important to to do the right thing.
0: Okay, so you guys don't know this, listeners. You will, but I want you to remember those comments. because those comments are not necessarily always associated with investment banking, right? Or private equity necessarily. Um, I've, I've met some great ones and I've met some near the wells <laughs> And so they were very selfish, et cetera. Um, but that's one of the things that really drew me to each of you when we got to know each other years ago, was um, for Broad Street Partners. So, Ben, go ahead and take us through a little bit more there. Yeah, um, absolutely. You mentioned BroadTree. Uh, these two are the managing partners of
3: BroadTree. And we're going to obviously explain what BroadTree Partners is. Um, and then Johannes is also the founder and managing partner at Zwick Partners. And Brad is also a partner at Zwick as well, right? So before we get into any of that, I want you two to paint the picture of how you two first met. And that will be able to take from there.
1: So Johannes and I met in college at Davidson. Uh, so we went to school, Davidson College, up to the road here from Charlotte. Uh, and I'd like to say there's this magical moment, but um, I think we just had a similar friend group, uh, and we actually ended up both being a part of uh, the same. Mm-hmm. Inter- so, mm-hmm. Johannes was a couple years older than me and uh, was somebody that I definitely looked up to and uh, he helped kind of show me the road. So
3: at, at what point did that pivot from college buddies to something in the professional realm of, hey, maybe we want to do something together?
1: I think uh, from my perspective, uh, after school, uh, I was looking at Beckham, Maracotta, and Givahana school that's, uh, I had recently started at the Tampa office and was investing capital on the Aptons family. And I saw what he was doing to be absolutely, fascinating. and Really, very really cool, really impressive story and how he had started with scratching So I was very intellectually curious in picking his brain and trying to understand what drove him, what his strategy and philosophy was. Uh, and I think uh, Johannes enjoyed reciprocating the trying to understand where I was at the bank and what types of companies they're sponsored by and where's some great investment DCs that you've seen and so we just developed this really cool intellectual rapport that um like turned our friendship into a potential business.
3: Johannes can you take us deeper behind the scenes because he had alluded to you started this family office and you were doing some of these things so talk to us a little bit about starting that family office what did the beginning of that entrepreneurial journey look like for you?
2: Yeah good question and honestly the beginning was definitely not a family office over time that sort of worked in I would say out of the gate, it was really an experiment that I wanted to engage in, I would say. And my dad was gracious enough to um, allow me to essentially manage a little bit of money for him. And in the beginning, it was it was really, it was just that, it was, you know, I, I had moved back to DS, but previous to, well, kind of starting um, on the, the Swick partners journey. I was working with my family's family business, much more sort of on the operating side, but always had this idea and thought and dream and passion for something more and kept the investing um, realm finance well. So, um, you know, I essentially started managing a little bit of money for my dad. It was really just public investments at the beginning um, and did pretty well with that. And over time, so I've got more responsibility that just got more family members to sign up. and then. A couple of years, and then really formalized the whole thing and kind of created an investment structure around that. Um, and then, you know, and I think fast forward now for 2009, 2012 is when the whole thing was really set up and set up as a formalized investment. You know, for, you know, the Looming partners, which were all family members. Of. And now, then, you know, as Brad mentioned, obviously great friends at college. We'll continue that friendship uh, post post college and. I remember we had lots of lunches and dinners where we were really just talking through different investment ideas. And I always had a tremendous amount of respect for Brad, really primarily for the things that he actually mentioned before we got called to the interview, just his, you know, work ethic and integrity and really motivation. And I could always tell that, you know, he wanted to do something really great. And that kind of you know, shared that same sort of mm-hmm. level of passion. So we through those discussions, I also just realized, hey, this would be somebody awesome to partner up with. 2000 early 2014 it was right a handful, Brad and forces its uh, WIC. So um, yeah, t- in you know 2014 when Brad came on and especially with his background I had gotten more and more interested in well private markets and shifting the light from of some of the public it's stuff that we were enjoying, doing it. which we continued to doing that's actually really sort of interesting strategies that maybe at some point we'll turn back but. Um, we really shifted kind of the, the, the investment operation to investing more in um, small business, businesses, mostly in the US. We actually did some stuff in Europe as well, it just through the network, but quite focused 90, percent of our time on, on things in the US. And together, we then just built out sort of this micro-cap private equity investing platform, essentially for the family. So.
0: Very cool. Talk a little bit about what your family did where they did it. And I know some of it, but the listeners don't. So I want to hear them to hear it from your mouth. But then also the dynamics of you know earning the right to be able to show yourself faithful with a little with your parents. You know, it wasn't just like, hey, you just got a boatload dumped on you and hey, let's just go squander it. I've seen that before too. But I just think that's really interesting. And it can be also really dicey when it's with family. So talk us, talk with us a little bit about that dynamic, how that led, and, you know, so that we've got a little context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good
2: question. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, just be perfectly candid, obviously, like being a family member, if my dad wanted to believe me in me there's no track record or anything that I had. I just had an idea and I told my dad, hey, I think I can do better than the bankers that we're working with. That was kind of the basic premise. And um, my dad's super entrepreneurial by himself. So he's like, why not? I'll give you a shot and see what happens. And then, it, so, you know, I guess took off from there. Um, but it is it is an interesting dynamic you know, just dealing with family members. I'd say the way that re- really brought that approach that, um, I think, has also helped us a lot, taught us a lot as we're going into brottery. And that, um, sort of, no, no matter what happens, just being super transparent, whether it's good or bad, um, and kind of earning trust that way. And mm-hmm. So that, especially when you know, inevitably you hit some words at some point. Todd, uh, people actually stick with you because yeah, they believe that what comes out of your mouth is actually what you're what you're doing. And I think that's just super important and. Maybe you know me, especially yeah. at the gate like that counted more than anything because I didn't want to yeah. be with family members because I know I, I agree like to me in my head that was also very dicey proposition, especially because yeah. I it, you know for me personally like the relationship with my family members is much more important than you know any any money in the world. So um, yeah. it was it was really important to make sure that there's there's trust there sort of no matter what
0: happened. Yeah. So I want to take you back a little bit further so when you're a young man when you're a child right young boy you're watching your father entrepreneur talk a little bit about what you observed what he was doing where he was doing it and then i'm going to turn it on you too, brad because i want to hear a little bit about one of the things that we love to hear is like when did that entrepreneurial spark hit or what did it happen just immediately or was it just fermenting over time, et cetera. So Yeah, that's a great question.
2: Um, I'd say just growing up, I definitely always looked up to my dad. And one of the things I always noticed, well, and he had a ton of energy and passion and enthusiasm for the things that he was doing. That is something that I knew I wanted in my career. Like I didn't want to be like a nine to five job that like, oh, I hate it and I can't wait to get out of here and do something else. Yes. Yeah, and One of the things that I remember I was about like my dad was just like all in. Like he loved his family and he was you know, he was there for us, but he was also traveling all the time. You know, he stopped touching his dinners and um I I also knew that hey, you know, maybe he wasn't um as home as much as some other dads and I was you know he was there for us but I do think we needed him. But I, I really respected that too. It's like hey, he's, he's really all in, he's on that mission and he's he's going down that path and I think Whenever I was a little kid, like I was new, but I didn't know the word entrepreneurship, but I knew that that's why I wanted my life. I wanted something where I could just be all in and just go for it and have a mission that I can, you know, essentially run
0: after. Did you ever get to join him in
2: his endeavors? Like, did he ever take you? Totally, all the time. Like, his office is where our playground's like, I'd shoot our sick in. We ran through the family business all the time. And, um, yeah. So and what was the family business? So we own and operate health care facilities at hotel in Germany
0: and Austria. Okay, cool. So they call them clinics there, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> I learned that from my German friend who, uh, he would go to, uh, Paracelsus or something like that. I can't remember, but there was a holistic clinic that was very expensive and it was like a five star resort, but that's. And they were amazing. So it was very different from what we think of here in the United States. Very, very interesting. All right. So while you're watching that, did you have these thoughts ever? Or when was the first time that you think that you had a thought of, man, I'd like to do something like that, too?
2: Yeah, like, quite frankly, like, growing up, I... I, Always either assume that I'm going to be running this family business at some point or I'm going to be running my own thing. And I can't remember where it happened when I just realized well, it's probably a combination of a couple of things because I also knew that I wanted to live in the US and PTA and not open Europe. I loved being over there. I loved seeing all my family, but I really obviously like being here in the US. So I think mean, maybe when I made that determination, kind of most likely to spend my life in the US. That's probably let it also click for me like hey I'm most likely at some point better be doing
0: my own thing. All right. So Brad, before I pass it back to you, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that because I find this really interesting. What was it about the United States? Because you had pretty good life in Germany, right? Yep. And um so and Germany's a beautiful place. Austria's a beautiful place. What was it about the United States that said that's where I want to be? Um,
2: also, a good question. So, I mean, I think it probably goes back to the fact that I have dual citizenship, so two passports. And you know, we as a you know kid, grown up, we spent a couple of weeks a year in the U.S. just on vacation. Um, and I, there's, I think, the really two things that I really loved about being. Like, Best one. I just feel like people here are generally more friendly than in Europe, especially in Germany. German people are definitely a lot more reserved, and they always yeah they like have but they always say they feel like Americans are superficial. But it's really just because I feel like people here are more open and a little bit friendlier than over there, which was just a cultural difference. Yeah, really, you know, can um, be good or bad. And then
4: the other piece
2: that I also Really, always loved about the U.S. is that people really celebrate it, um, success and victory. And i think in, mm. in Germany and probably in all of Europe, I do think there's a certain sense of uh, maybe jealousy when when you become successful, and or almost um, sometimes they feel like like oh, like something's wrong with this person. They did something wrong to get to where they are. And allowed. and in the U.S., it's really celebrated, and it's a good thing how is always been.
0: well that's really fascinating um johannes thank you for sharing that i i just i love getting perspective from people that have lived outside because i think sometimes familiarity breeds contempt and i think many times we are not aware of the blessings that we have in this country which is not perfect i mean it's it's messed up just like a lot of places but i find that same thing of, you know that's what i like living in a, in charlotte mm-hmm. there are a lot of very genuine people that are genuinely happy to see blue skies and sunshine more often than not <laughs> because a lot of them are from the yeah, north I was gonna say
5: consider me one of those having <laughs> exactly. down from minnesota and wisconsin
0: oh is it really minnesota yeah. oh interesting i yeah. didn't know that so i'm going to go back to you now brad And I want you to think about, I've got a number of questions for you, but one of them is this whole notion of entrepreneurship, did did it run in your family? When was the first time that that spark maybe took hold with you?
5: Yeah, so my dad is definitely entrepreneurial and has an entrepreneurial bug. Um, A little bit different maybe than, than Johannes. And then I also would say, my grandfather my mom's dad well not entrepreneurial in the sense uh that he took a financial risk and started a business uh but i think in an adjacent nature in that he immigrated to the u.s from taiwan and so he came here oh, wow. with nothing and uh, wanted to move his family to the u.s and in many ways in my eyes that's a very mm-hmm. similar kind of entrepreneurial risk to take and so he came here and got a advanced degree in the U.S. and got a job and was able to send some money back and then eventually was able to save enough money to bring the whole family over Uh, and so I think that's something that I always Mm -hmm. really really admired about about him
0: yeah Ooh. more stuff that I didn't know and that's why we love these podcasts (laughs) (laughs) so you guys could get to hear same time real time that we're learning some of this stuff. So, when, what a what a fascinating background. What brought you to Charlotte? Then was it Davidson and why Davidson?
5: Yeah. So, what brought me to Charlotte was Davidson, uh, and my first job out of school. And I consider myself to be pretty lucky, pretty blessed. I mean, I graduated in 2009, so in the midst of the Great Recession, and. Yeah. If I looked across my graduating class and amongst my peers and friends, there were not many people that had jobs. Uh, and so mm-hmm. the opportunity was here and was not something that I was going to miss. And uh, thankfully, I've ended up really loving Charlotte, and it's very much home now. Uh, but that's that's what brought me here.
0: If I remember right, didn't you work for Bobby Cashin?
5: I did. I worked with him uh, at my first, uh, first stint at B of A, and we were yeah. in the— uh, special assets group and as you can imagine at that point in time, <laughs> there's a lot of special there was yeah <laughs> there was a lot to, to deal with
0: Wow yeah for anybody listening Bobby Cashin is just another one of those really good guys that's an investment banker he's got his own thing now but uh, he has mentored a lot of really talented people and uh, so that was another kind of common link that you and I had which is really interesting so you guys were friends. I didn't even know that there were fraternities at uh, Davidson. So what was the fraternity?
5: Uh, Phi Delta Theta.
0: Oh, okay, cool.
5: It's a very different scene at Davidson, in my opinion. It's a very inclusive, um, and I don't think fraternities are people's identity at, yeah, uh, yeah. at Davidson. Uh, yeah. So it's a little bit different.
0: Yeah, that's
3: cool. So you're... You're having that experience at b of a the first one while you guys are going to dinner talking investment strategies and ideas at what point did that pivot for you of you're in this corporation you guys are having your dinners and conversations to hey i'm gonna i'm gonna make a change and i'm gonna do something uh here with johannes
5: yeah so we actually had dinner one night and johannes uh asked me he said hey what would you think about Working together, and I was totally taken <laughs> off guard and surprised, uh, and but also very honored to, you know, yeah. um, to have him say that. And um, I said, I think that would be awesome. It'd be really interesting. Like, what? Let's talk more about what's the what's the long-term strategy, and and how can I help, and what would our partnership look like? And uh, those conversations just evolved, and uh, obviously grew into me. Uh, being very excited to, to leave Bank of America and and join Johannes.
3: So we've had experiences both personally and also had guests on the podcast, and some guests that swear by partnerships and others that swear anti-partnerships. Yeah. So with you two being friends prior also, what were some of those conversations to make sure you're setting it up the right way so you two are set up for success, not a potential bomb down the road?
4: Huh good question i actually don't know if we had a ton of conversations like i will figure it out <laughs> no it was more like i just knew it was going to work okay. like that's why but i agree like i think it's it's a potential you know uh, not just roadblock but a yeah. bomb i guess like, yeah like you described it mm-hmm. and i just knew it was going to work with brad you know we had i think a personal connection on a friendship level i think shared a lot of the same values think a lot of um, I guess similar thoughts or along the, along similar lines. So, I never had any doubt that it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't think we had a whole lot of conversations about what the partnership looks like. Obviously, we, you know we made sure we had partnership agreements and all this stuff. But um, you know I don't think we spent a ton of time. Or maybe, I don't
5: know. If yeah, I think to me, what's really made us successful together and a good fit is that uh, we both have a really strong level of shared respect for each other Mm -hmm. and I prior to long before working together I had a lot of respect for what Johannes was doing and the way he conducted himself and I thought it was really impressive what he had built uh, from an investment platform uh, for for his family Uh, and Mm -hmm. that was something that I respected and wanted to be a part of Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that kind of shared mutual respect I think has been a really big piece of our relationship and kind of the the trust that we have.
3: So everything we've talked about so far was preceding Broadtree right and so you guys come together your partners with uh, at Zwift and that not Zwift sorry I cycle so <laughs> at, at Zwift um, and so then take us into what Broadtree is and how that came about.
4: Yeah maybe I'll take a first stab at this and Brad feel free to chime in here but um, we actually came to BroadTree from an investor perspective so our third partner at BroadTree his name is Dave Slunzak. he's actually one of the co-founders there um, we you know met Dave I think it was early, either late 2016 maybe early 2017 when he was setting up BroadTree with um, you know his partner at the time uh, Jason Hall and um, Rad and I really became interested in this asset class called the Search Fund Asset Class or Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition ETA. Um, and, but again, from an, from an investor perspective. And we talked to a lot of people, did a ton of research and kind of how best to really access that, that asset class. And um, eventually through, actually Davidson Connections, got connected with Dave, he also went to Davidson, graduated a couple years before before I got there. Um, and obviously before Br- Brack got there as well, and um, we just thought, hey, this, this is a better mousetrap, like this is a better way to attack, um, you know, this, this ETA asset class. So kind of loved the model, sort of made all the sense in the world from us from an investor perspective. So, you know, we actually became one of the first investors in Broughtree and sort of the, the first iteration that, that Dave and, and Jason had set up at that point in time. Um, and really loved working with Dave and all the, you know, search fund entrepreneurs um, um, at, at Broadtree. And maybe if I just take a step back real quick. So what is Broadtree? And yeah. Essentially, we're a low middle market operator centric um, private equity model in that we hire between one to four, we call them operating partners. Um, every year and really that's a misnomer. It's more like CEOs or executives and residents that come work for Broadtree. typically on average for about two years and we look for acquisition targets with them. So small companies that we can buy where our operating partner, our CEO and residents can essentially go in and run that company post-close. So you know, we really, again, like that from an investor perspective, really loved working with Dave, loved what he was doing at Broadtree, really enjoyed working with, with the CEOs, these entrepreneurs, and, uh, or CEOs in residents. And so, fast forward a couple of years, two years later, 2019, we sat down with Dave and just kind of talked through hey, you know, where are you trying to take Broadtree? What are you trying to do? And he kind of asked us the same questions for his WIC. And his co founder, Jason Hole, was also retiring uh, at that point in time. So you know, kind of through a series of conversations, we just realized, hey, it makes a whole lot of sense for us to partner up. Our skill sets are very synergistic. We really kind of love what you're doing here with Broadtree. So both Brad and I came on in 2019, and pretty much since then, the, the three of us have been, have been running that place.
3: So you said earlier, operator-centric i I want you to talk a little bit more and explain to the listeners what is an operator-centric model what does that mean to you uh just to to give the listeners a little more insight
5: yeah so i think in the very traditional private equity model the private equity firm is looking to back an existing management team or they're looking to hire an executive search firm and bring in a a hired gun at some point in time Uh, i think our model is different because we're actually trying to identify operating talent before we even have the business. And so we're building a team full of W2 full-time employees, these CEOs and residents uh, operating partners that Johannes just described Mm -hmm. that will uh, one day in the hopeful near future be running companies for us. Um, And so we're looking to partner with very high caliber folks that we think are versatile call them like operating athletes right and they can uh, go in and be successful in a variety of different roles and businesses and we think that's really value additive in the small business lower middle market space because inevitably uh, those businesses are going to need to shore up the foundation to scale and grow right and um, we're big believers in building a strong foundation so that when you do grow um, you can support that growth Uh, and so Bringing an operating partner to the transaction is one way we think we can provide some additional value add to, to a founder or an entrepreneur um, and kind of insert somebody with a full tank of gas into the business, which I think is huge.
3: Yeah, One of the dynamics is the matchmaking, right? You have these these leaders, these CEOs, and then you have these companies. What do you look for, whether it's in culture, whether it's in personality, the dynamics there where you say, hey, this is the right person to put into this, into this system?
4: Yeah, it's a good question, and in some ways I would even say it's almost a little bit of a self-selection process because our operating partners really lead the sourcing and origination um, of our deal flow, essentially. So, you know, the first point of connection most of the time is between our operating partner and the existing business owner, most of the time, you know, founder. Sometimes it's, you know, it could be second, third, fourth generation business. Um, but with the existing business owner, so that match has to work. That business owner has to believe, hey, this is the right person yep. to take over this company, mm-hmm. to take my baby, and you know, and kind of yeah. There's a lot of trust there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Run the company going forward. So from that perspective, I already say there's a lot of self-selection just in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, you know, we we do spend a lot of time thinking through, hey, where would our folks, our our athletes, essentially you know be able to run the fastest um and uh, sometimes it's based on you know industry experience i think for some industries it is pretty important that you have some type of industry experience for other other industries it's it's less important that at least you have adjacent experience or skill sets that are required in that company whether that's from you know an operations background or a marketing background you know a lot of these um, small businesses often i would say you know lack one or two sort of functions that you would see in a larger organization. And if we can essentially have an operating partner that can plug in and really kind of fill that gap, that can be super value value additive.
5: Yeah. One thing that I want to circle back to that Johannes mentioned, um, we are big believers that business is built upon relationships and trust. And I think having these operating partners on our team that are able to personally interact with founders and entrepreneurs and both bring their own unique entrepreneurial story and kind of get to know each other and build that rapport and trust I think establishes a really solid and really important kind of base relationship that we can build and grow from and really helps both sides get comfortable like is this the type of person that I want to be in business with that Mm -hmm. I want to partner with over the next three, five, ten 10 years, potentially. Yep. Um, and so I think that's a really important aspect of, of what we're doing.
3: Yep. Um, to keep painting the picture a little bit more and then kinda wanna get tactical into the business some, what are some of the things you're looking for in these, in these companies? Whether it's, hey, we wanna do turnarounds and we want distressed companies, do we want high growth companies, high opportunity? What are you looking for in a company?
4: Yeah, I would say definitely not uh turnarounds or distressed yeah, businesses yeah. um you're not doing a whole bunch of short sales no, <laughs> no i could
5: sense Johannes cringing when you
4: cringing <laughs> yeah no what we really want to do and what we've noticed works best in you know the companies that we acquire is when we can essentially add fuel to the fire so we want a company that's already growing and you know in some instances maybe it's almost growing too quickly and it needs somebody that can install you know a little bit more um I guess uh, Process uh, processes structure. and structure into the business yep. to really allow the company to scale to the next level. Yep. Um, so I'd say that's that's kind of the ideal situation. You know, we want a good business. We we want something that's essentially already growing. Um, that you know is is doing well on its own, and we can essentially through not just our operating partner, but also through you know capital inject additional growth into the company and really allow the business essentially to go to the next level. Yeah. Um,
3: one of the curiosities I have as I'm listening to you two talk. What are some of those big lessons that you've learned, right? Because you came out of college, you went straight into, hey, I want to try this thing. You had some corporate experience and then you go in. So what are some of the hurdles you faced or the lessons you learned early on that you're now able to apply to broad trade?
4: lessons early on I'd say maybe one thing that you know we've really brought to Bratry is maybe more of a, kind of an investing discipline mm-hmm. like the origination you know from Dave and Jason that created the company then as well as a lot of the the operating partners that were there in the beginning stages it's really sort of a entrepreneurial operating background and I think one thing that Brad and I really brought to Broadtree is probably more of kind of the maybe the investing and, and finance mindset which is you know, just as important right. um, to this as, as the operating side. Um,
3: yeah, two different sides of the same coin. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Brett?
5: Um, good question. I have to think about that. So I think this is going to sound almost counterintuitive after what Johanna said, but I think <laughs> we also really like to emphasize that businesses really are a collection of people. Right, and mm-hmm. what makes businesses go are the people there every day, uh, and I think it's easy. Especially, you know, we partner with very, very successful, um, very. Uh, how do I put this? Uh, people. It can be easy for them to view a business as a spreadsheet and a mm-hmm. PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so I think that's something that we really like to reinforce, and I think like viewing. A business through that lens really changes the way you think about it and you know how you want to go in and, and create value there
4: and maybe one other thing I'll add I think that both um, Brad and I you know not just brought to, brought to you, but I think we're, we're still continuing to really try to instill in everybody that comes on board is this sense of just trying to figure out hard problems like you know it's wick partners like we didn't really know what we we're doing. We didn't have like a formal training in exactly what we we're yeah. doing. Like, yeah, we had some training and you know and, and a passion for this, but at the end of the day, like, we just figured it out. And I think that's something that's really important in kind of this small business entrepreneur realm. That you, that's a muscle that you really learn how to flex. That you're facing things that you've never faced before, and you just somehow figure it out.
3: <laughs> um- you're going through these businesses you're doing the investment side especially but really you're you're in and out of different companies right interacting with a ton of different people how do you not get caught up in that how do you make sure you also prioritize you had mentioned both of you mentioned enjoying running doing spartan races time with family things like that how do you make sure that you keep those priorities in line as well right because that balance is everybody strikes it different or goes about it differently
5: yeah Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I'm not very good at that. You're like, I'll let you know when I'll I figure let, it out. Yes. I'll let you <laughs> take that question first.
4: <laughs> um, I would say I try to be good about that. And the only way that I know how to do it, the only way I can do it is just stay in discipline. Like I've got a schedule throughout the week that I've got set up and, you know, and I try to stick to that as much as I can. So mm-hmm. I go to bed at the same time, I get up at the same time and... You know, I essentially run my program. Very <laughs> um,
5: German of him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah. It is. That is
0: very German, isn't it? <laughs> structure. Um, like it is. That. Yeah.
4: But honestly, without that structure and without sticking sticking to that structure, like I would not be able to balance it. There's no yeah. way. Yeah. And I've I've known that. Like I've felt that at some point in my life, I'm like, okay, like if I don't just stick to this, it's yeah. just not going to happen.
3: So I just got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Good. Brad, what's the aspect of that that you're that you're still trying to figure out that you struggle with?
5: Well, so I think what helps and what's important to me is being very present uh, when I am choosing to spend time in different, I guess, buckets called professional and personal. And so when it is personal time, family time, making sure that I am focused and present and doing whatever I can to, which can sometimes be hard, block what's going on during Mm -hmm. the day and what, you know fire drills you might be uh, awaiting on the business side of things but being present and maximizing every moment that you have in that uh, uh, personal bucket.
0: Yeah, interesting. What kind of uh, give us a sense for like how many portfolio companies are you guys managing at a time?
5: So we have I think 12 companies in the portfolio right now. We've made about 30 acquisitions total, 14 of which are platforms and the remainder are add-on acquisitions that have been merged into or with one of uh, our existing companies.
0: That's, you know, pretty formidable. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. No wonder you have to have structure, Johannes, be because <laughs> otherwise, I mean, this thing could be eating your lunch, I mean, it, it, the tail could be wagging the dog in a big way, so I think that's one of those things where I think everybody struggles with that balance at times, right? Because, and I don't know that there is such a thing as balance, but you had mentioned that your dad just felt alive, you know, and even though he wasn't necessarily present as much as some other dads, there was still this confidence that there wasn't an abandonment and that you were still a priority. And, you know, so there is this kind of ebbing and flowing and flexing that occurs but it still comes down to priority management and one of the things that I keep hearing back from you guys is just this priority on people which is really interesting because that is that was very much the uh, philosophy of private equity when I was in and it was a very unique group Um, but it was kind of very different from a lot of other private equity what I would call rip, strip, and flip houses where it was driven by the numbers, people that had never risked their own capital to do it, and it was pretty sterile and surgical. Um, And the outcomes weren't always very good long-term. They were very short-term, they benefited quite well, a lot of other people suffered, at least that was what I observed there's something that you had mentioned you know The decades yes yeah yeah. go go into that before
3: you guys came in um one of the things i I shared with gary one of the things that i loved when i was doing research before this is on the uh the zwick website when you're talking about your investment strategy and philosophy it's that we think in decades not years and (laughs) i first off just loved that phrase uh But I think a big part of it is, and it's been consistent throughout this conversation, is you two are going about things differently. How do we solve the same problems in a different, better way? So can you talk a little bit about that, whether it's about just mindset in general uh, and problem solving or specific to to that decades instead of years thing?
5: Well, just touching on Gary's rip, and flip comment, I mean, that's one of the most common questions we get when we meet a business owner yeah Um, they say hey look I've heard a lot of things about private equity and not all of it or maybe a lot of it's not good Mm -hmm. and we can genuinely tell them that when we look to partner with you and acquire your company we're gonna be doing the opposite actually we're investing back into the company and we want to take all the cash flow that the business produces and put that back into the company and invest that in more people more talent more better systems better processes things that will ease pain points for the existing Mm -hmm. team and things that will make uh the business and work streams more efficient uh, so that we can be do more together and and be better together Um, and so it's quite the opposite of that rip strip and flip mentality. We're always we're adding headcount, we're reinvesting mm-hmm. back.
4: Yeah, and actually the interesting data points on that, we did this I think was it this year or last year? I think it was this year. We kind of looked back through the last whatever five or six years and compared all of our underwriting cases that we, you know, projected initially to the actuals. Mm. And two things that we found that were really interesting is one, we actually um overestimated, overestimated the margins. On average, so as Brad me- and that's because as Brad mentioned, we actually invest a lot back into the business, but then we also underestimated the revenue growth. So interesting, um, yeah. Um, so pretty kind of interesting, and it kind of goes speaks to what Brad just explained. We really want to invest in the business because we get excited when we feel like we can double, triple, quadruple the size of a company, not because we think, hey, we can take EBITDA from three to five by cutting yeah. half the workforce and yeah. then flipping it two years later, like. If somebody pitched that at the investment committee, I don't think he would get a lot of, hey, that's awesome. Like, right. that's not, we don't, we, like, the, we don't think it's that's cool. It's just not <laughs> part of our philosophy.
5: Yeah. And, I mean, there's plenty of ways to achieve the, out, the outcome of generating returns for investors. And so not saying one way is better than the other. They're just different. And the way we think about it is a little bit different than others
0: Well, I'll just say it's a lot different than a lot of others uh, from what I because You know, I've I've got a good friend that sold his company a year ago And he heard the same things that you guys are talking about what he experienced was just the opposite I mean this place has trashed tons of roll-ups and on paper, it looks like a great idea, but they have just completely trashed these companies and it's it makes me extremely sad actually because they had a very good culture. They've driven out all the good talent because they're like, enough of that, you know. And it's just sad because nobody is gonna actually sign up with if 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 the rip strip and flip philosophy is truly what they're doing, they're not they're gonna hide that because nobody's gonna sign up for that one. <laughs> you know. Because unless you have a heart of stone and don't care about your company, and everybody that started the company actually cares, they usually do, most of them do. And so the other thing that I would say for anybody listening to this that's maybe not an entrepreneur, you like these human interest stories, this emphasizes again kind of why what, what we're doing. We, we believe that you can have capitalism in a good way, in a healthy way, and it actually propels and enhances families and communities. That is what drives me, you know, and I know it's very important to, to Ben as well. And that's what we're trying to highlight people like you guys that are really trying to do it right, and it's not just about chasing a dollar. Yeah, we, you know, profits important it's in, it's essential to have an ongoing business that you can be talking about decades you know but that's not the ultimate goal you know it's just money you know people's lives and families are impacted and communities are impacted for good or bad and so i just want to say thank you because that's a that that is a rarity in the private equity world and again i'm not trying to Paint a super broad brush and vilify anybody that's in private equity, but you know, beware. Do do your due diligence if if you're an agency or a business owner and you're thinking about all right. So I don't have really anybody internally to take it, or I need some money and they don't have the money. and you're you're thinking about succession in these kind of terms and somebody starts knocking on your door because they've got cash you really need to do your due diligence on who not just what's the multiple going to be absolutely do
3: you run against that as you're talking to potential companies to invest in the skepticism of being a pe firm and, and if so how do you how do you handle that conversation or probably those conversations right it's more than more than just a 30-minute combo
5: Yeah, I think it's a lot of what we just talked about, and it's building that relationship with them and showing them who we are as people and getting them comfortable that we are going to be straightforward and transparent with you. And um, as Johanna said, a lesson learned from when he started the family office and after I joined him when we worked and managed it together was the importance of the transparency and the good news and bad news needs mm-hmm. to travel at equally fast speeds mm-hmm. and I think um, really just building that level of trust and relationship um, so that they understand who we are and what we're about, I think that's that's how we kind of solve that problem.
4: And I would also add to that in our model with you know our operating partners or CEOs and residents, um, it's really a very different pitch to, to a business owner, especially from kind of a level of engagement. In our operating partners oftentimes, when we actually acquire a business and they you know, go in to, to be the CEO, sometimes they need to move across the country. So actually in the latest acquisition we made earlier this year, our operating partner um, moved from San Diego to Tampa, Florida with two kids, and a wife wow. and both kids i think were under two at that yep. point in time so like that's a big commitment right so and i think yeah that's something else that the business owners appreciate that hey there is it's not just the private equity firm it's this person that's going to come in like literally uproot their life and run this company going forward like i think they really um appreciate that level of commitment
3: what are some of the things you do internally in the company to prep them for this person coming in and being implanted, right? Because maybe the owners have lots of interactions, but mm-hmm. employees maybe have seen them around once or twice but really don't know this person. So what do you do to make that successful?
5: So in the days leading up to close of the transaction, we spend a lot of time doing 100-day planning and thinking through how do we ensure a smooth transition. Uh, I think the... Again, going back to the relationship with the founder, uh, that's very important, because they can be the ally for our Mm -hmm. operating partner. They can be the one that's, uh, right? Because the the business is gonna listen to them, right? Mm -hmm. They've been the leader of this organization for probably many, many years. And if they're coming in and saying, hey, look, I'm really excited about this. This guy or gal is the right person for the next chapter. Um, that makes that process a lot easier. Yeah.
4: And I would maybe add to that as well that probably the first sort of 100 days um, are maybe you know, the first or the most important 100 days of mm-hmm. kind of the life of the business. Yeah. And what we are constantly preaching to our operating partners, and we've you know, seen this in the past and learned some lessons there, is that you really don't want to change anything when you go in especially yeah. in the first hundred days like don't touch anything just get to know people allow them to get to know you build trust relationship rapport with uh, with the employee base and if you get that done the first six you know three to six months then after that you can start sprinting but out of the gate you don't you know the less you change mm-hmm. the better it'll actually be for you long term yeah. so if you well, come in and you know you think you, you've you got your MBA playbook and you got a degree from a top 10 business school and you know how to do everything better you're going to lose everybody in the company and then you're going to have to start from one again you know six twelve months down the road
0: that is critical (laughs) And, and it's astonishing to me and it's it's probably egocentric but it's astonishing to me how few companies get that like when they're buying
4: and it's it's actually really it's more difficult than just saying it because they come in young hungry motivated and they see some things that they know should be fixed yeah. and to sit back and not fix it and just focus on really getting to know it's hard <laughs> yeah yep. Um, so
0: what do you do are you guys doing anything from outside coaching or getting that management team involved in peer to peer groups or at least the top two but what are you doing to help like galvanize and get that management team really cohesive after you've interjected a whole new thing, new, like, oh, wow, we've got access to some capital that we didn't know before. We may have some responsibility for reporting and accountability that we didn't have before, I'm sure. Um, So are are you guys doing anything from that perspective or is it pretty much up to the CEO and residents? How's that work?
5: So we have internal processes that we go through and a lot of that is with the CEO and residents in terms of some of the things you touched on, the expectation setting and um, here's the expected reporting cadence, here's the expected board cadence, here's Mm -hmm. what we expect out of each of those things. Um, And so that's how we tackle it, I guess, internally. We do also have uh, external stakeholders. We work with uh, a couple executive coaches that are there to help prepare our operators to go in and uh, facilitate a smooth transition mm-hmm. and also to help them galvanize that team together and help them align on uh, whether it's a BHAG or a mission, yeah. vision, values, or um, whatever the big picture, long-term vision and goal of that company should be all right good good gary approves (laughs) well good answer brad it's yeah
0: (laughs) not that i'm the be-all end-all but i'm just like good it's good to hear that because it's often not the case yeah Yeah, Yeah, it's a missed opportunity
4: we're big fans of executive coaching we actually use an executive coach at broadtree as well for us as like a corporate team Um, good
0: so yeah How'd you find that person? What were you looking for? What have been some of the outcomes for anybody listening? Like, what? what? what's an executive coach? What's that mean? Yeah, good question, that's a
4: loaded one. Um, how do we find him? So um, we interviewed you know, a bunch of different executive uh, coaches and this is a few years ago. And you know, the, the one that we are currently using, his name is Jeff Silverman, and um, he's actually really well-known in kind of this ETA asset class. And initially, you know, we brought him on as a resource really to work with our operating partners, CEOs, and residents, and he does, he does that work. But we've also really started using him as, you know, at Broadtree. Um, and he, I'd say, you know, he's helped us in a number of ways. I think individually to become better leaders, but maybe more importantly, um, as a group, especially as kind of the, the managing partners, to make sure that we're aligned and we're working well together. Because having three managing partners mm-hmm. is really not easy. That's like a three-way marriage, essentially, right? right? And so getting that right and making sure that um, we're doing the right things f- for each other, for the firm, for us individually, um, is something that you know Jeff's really helped us um, a lot with.
5: And Gary, earlier you asked about how we Made that transformation and how we built a portfolio of fourteen businesses and how yeah. we manage that and that's to be candid it's been hard right and yeah. we've all had to make the adjustment and I know I struggle with it still every day of going from being a individual contributor and a doer to a manager of a team and an organization yeah uh, and it's. It's not always easy. And so that's something, having somebody like Jeff to lean on, and um, he's really helped me personally uh, become a better leader and become more aware of what, like, how to have impact within an organization, essentially, um, and to help us get out of the weeds and become more of fund managers rather than deal guys.
3: Yeah. mm mm-hmm. So talk to us about what's next. What's the next evolution for you two? What's the next evolution for uh, Brodry?
5: So I'll start, I think long term, our vision is to stay in this part of the market. We're very passionate about the lower middle market and working with small businesses, providing capital and um, creating partnerships that facilitate growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really important to us. Um, And so we don't have aspirations or plans to raise larger and larger funds and go up market and do larger and larger deals. Uh, Where I think we wanna grow is almost like horizontally instead of vertically. And I think we can build out ancillary strategies that all sit and live in this lower middle market space and would be synergistic to the other existing strategies but would allow us to continue to grow and scale what we're doing. Yeah, and
4: it's funny we we talked about decades earlier. We're actually right now going through a strategy planning process to like lay out the next ten years for Broadtree. Mm-hmm. So literally thinking about the next decade and um, you know the strategy that Brad envisioned that Brad just outlined is what we as partners have aligned around. Hey, we really like dealing with these small businesses that are you know uh, maybe a little bit less sophisticated than larger middle market companies Mm -hmm. and with kind of these talented operating partners that we have that are also maybe a little bit less experienced than you would um, typically see a CEO of of a middle market company but they're you know highly entrepreneurial and super motivated and um, you know I think there are a ton of opportunities down here in this market where you know traditionally I think a lot of P firms might start out Sort of in, in the low middle market, and then just grow out of it. And their aspiration is really to become bigger and raise raise larger funds and have more assets under management. Which, yeah, of course, maybe that's part of the strategy for us as well. But it's really by staying committed to to this end of the market and providing access and capital to these small businesses um, across the U.S.
0: So I've got another tactical question. As we're kind of getting towards the end here, I know, but. This is this is a challenge I see with a lot of partners and and even among management teams. How do you delineate the responsibilities and the lanes especially with three? But with two it's still important, but then three it's an exponential thing. So how do you guys and how have you done that and how do you continue to assess where the lane lines are and how do you honor those
5: if jeff were listening he'd either be laughing or (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (coughs) that's hard uh that was a long process for us it took a lot of time to put some structure around that and to be more disciplined and for the first you know three four years of our partnership we were all involved in every aspect of the business and we were our lanes were morphing and moving Mm -hmm. constantly and as we've scaled and grown and now built an organization of 15 people like we can't continue to operate that way and so uh, that's been something we've invested a lot of time at the partner level making sure we establish formal swim lanes but also ways for the other partners to still feel like they have visibility into the other lanes and and ability to provide feedback should should that be necessary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: yeah and just to add on to that i think in the beginning the first couple of years it was relatively easy because it's just dave brad and i right and then obviously our operating partners but like at corporate it was just the three of us mm-hmm. so we would just the three of us we would just get it done we get on the phone once a day right and we just you do this you do this you boom done and we just go run with it tackle it and then you know as we added more portfolio companies and had more people like that was not sustainable so Mm -hmm. you know we really started building out a corporate team started hiring more more folks and then we got exactly into that discussion about swim lanes and trying to figure that out and honestly it was it was a quite painful process for for a while there but I think Mm -hmm. we've gotten to to a good place now it's still you know a 5,000 piece puzzle and we're still putting Pieces in place, mm-hmm. um, and I think that'll always be the case. But um, yeah, it, it was definitely a process, and you know, um, you know, the executive coach definitely helped a lot in that as well. Yeah, yeah.
5: And we'll be constantly iterating on that, and that's something that's important to us and our core values at Broadtree. We're strong believers in continuous improvement, and so as Jana said, it might be a five thousand piece puzzle, but we're constantly changing what we want that puzzle to look like and how pieces can fit together. Mm-hmm
3: this has been a lot of fun mm-hmm. um, without us going way too in the weeds and the listeners tuning out this has been unbelievable the, the amount of knowledge that you guys have, have uh, bestowed on, upon us so I appreciate it any final thoughts anything else you want to uh, to share with the listeners before we sign off
5: no thank you guys for having us I mean this has been been fun for me as well and uh, yeah I appreciate the, the opportunity to be here
4: yeah same here been, been a lot of fun talking about this stuff today and um, enjoyed it so thank you guys.
5: I guess the only thing I'll say to answer your question on business owners uh, think through all of your different options and evaluate what makes the most sense for you because there is no one size fits all Mm -hmm. and so whether it's private equity broadly or even specific private equity firms there is no one size fits all. Our model is not the best model for everyone and neither is another model Um, and so it's really about fit uh, yeah. fit and relationship yeah oh, that's mm. great well
3: where said. can uh, the listeners find you guys and, and Bratree
4: so BratreePartners.com is probably the best place to go to Um, It's a website. I think all of our contact information is on there as well, or LinkedIn. uh, That's another good place as well.
5: And I'm notorious for being bad at keeping current on LinkedIn (laughs) or social media in general. Um, So go find his email uh, on on (laughs) broadtreepartners.com and pepper First initial, last name at (laughs) broadtreepartners.com.
0: There you go. Thank you, guys. Good job, guys. Thank you. Thank you.